This episode of According to Flint is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, who is proud to bring the Western lifestyle and outdoor enthusiasts together for conservation projects, enhancing elk habitat, and ensuring the future of America's hunting heritage. Visit rmef.org for more information. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode of According to Flint. Hey everybody, thanks again to our friends at Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for their support as always of all things according to Flint on social media and right here at the podcast and welcome to episode number 55 as I welcome an old friend and acquaintance of mine, Mr. Damian Mason, Not maybe not a familiar name to you. Damian is a comedian, an author, an agriculturalist, and basically just a man with great information about all things agriculture and the politics behind most of it. If you're ready to be intrigued and informed and entertained, welcome to episode 55 and my friend, Mr. Damian Mason. This, along with every episode of According to Flint, brought to you by Pendleton Whiskey. For more than a century, the Pendleton Roundup has defined what it means to be a cowboy. It also gave life to something equally renowned, a whiskey that captures that unique spirit in every bottle. A whiskey made with the finest northern grains and cut with Mount Hood glacier water. A whiskey that celebrates the cowboy in all of us. That is Pendleton whiskey, and that's true Western tradition. Pendleton Distillers, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Please drink responsibly. Well, welcome to episode number 55, according to Flint. And as I mentioned, please welcome, not please, happy to welcome a friend. We have not spoken in, man, it's been a couple of years. Yeah, two, two, three years. We have not spoken through COVID, nothing, because maybe we're not that good of friends. What are you, Damian Mason? Are you an agriculturalist? Are you an author? Author, by the way, of the book Food Fear. Everything in Damien's life is alarming. Damien Mason. Good. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to have you. There it is. Food fear. So thanks for having me on here. I'll hold this up for the people that are watching your cool YouTube channel, which I just subscribed to. So you talk about whether we're not that good of friends. Why in the world was I not subscribed to the Flint Rasmussen channel as it is? I just finally did. Actually, it's according to Flint uh, channel. Um, you know, and I got a YouTube channel also, the Damian Mason channel. We're trying to get some people to, to go to so your people can do that. I am holding up a copy of my book about the past, present and future of agriculture. Um, I don't care what you refer to me as. Um, I've been around here for a long enough time and you have also that as long as uh, as long as you uh, always are making forward progress, there was a time when uh, people used to call me a comedian then yeah. uh, been a farm kid. Um, we mostly go now by um, book author, podcast host, and uh, agricultural economist and farm owner. Been getting a fair amount of media. The one good thing that you and I both went through, we get on stages. You get on a stage in front yeah. of PBR and do your your entertainment of those awesome crowds at the, the P 
PBR events. I get on stages in front of corporate agricultural events and association events mm. in the industry and talk about outlook and insights for the business of agriculture. We both went through a little phase where uh, there were no events. There was no bull rodeo. There's no rodeos. There was no uh, corporate meetings. So there was a little um, uh, challenge, but you and I both figured out other stuff to do during 2020 and 2021. I did do a bunch more work on my farm. And I got to say, I kind of miss it because now I'm back to bump on the road really hard. And I drive in the drive and I'm like, that needs done. That needs done. I haven't even been on the tractor in three weeks. This needs done. And unfortunately, I'm on airplanes and, and doing other stuff. So the farm is farms in need of some attention right now. But uh, as well, you know, the COVID stuff was was hard and depressing and you sit by yourself, whatever. And then, then you, then everything comes back and you think, Ooh, great to be back to work. And then after a couple of weeks, like, you know, I, I liked a glass of wine at two 30, you know, I, whatever. I, I, I would say, well, I don't drink wine, but yeah, every day then for a while after you do all you could go to the desk, pound the, pound the rocks together, try and get a nickel to fall out, uh, do your social media stuff. <laughs> I shot a lot of videos and put uh-huh. them out there for my, my following and fan base. And it got harder and harder to stay away from the kegerator till five o'clock. I can tell you that for a few weeks. Um, I, we, we both went through that uh-huh. where, uh, What'd they say? Um, I, I went ahead and bought my three weeks of supply for, uh, of, of alcohol at the grocery store to get through the first uh, three weeks of shutdown. And it lasted me uh, a week and a half. But, you know, what's interesting is um, I still kept doing stuff and so did you. And I, um, I got to tell you that I, I slowed down a little bit. And I told Lori, you and I, we just discovered before we hit record or a year apart uh, in age, and so I said, hey, I didn't plan on slowing down at age 51, Lori. This is going two years ago. I said, but here we are. It's the summer of, uh, you know, 2020. And I said, maybe we're just going to be a little slower. With You know, I'll still have business interests and things going on. I took up golf August of 2020, just two years ago. I took up golf. I had tried way back when I was a corporate employee 30 years ago, and I used to get so mad. I just would like start breaking stuff and tipping the golf carts over and people like, I don't think you should do this. It's not going to be good for business. So I did take my slower time and start uh, playing golf. You know, um, it, it made me a little more laid back. And I think that happened to a lot of us in terms of, hey, that work's going to be there. I'm still going to work. I still enjoy working, but I also it's okay to not be hammering it all the time. Yeah. Um, are you any good? Like how, how you hitting them? Isn't that what we say? How you hitting yeah. them? All right. Yeah. It, I'll tell you, man, it's a, uh, it's a very humbling game. I've taken about two dozen lessons. I'd like to think I have some degree of athleticism. I'm, I still do exercise and I am somewhat fit for a middle-aged guy. I'm long. That helps. Um, like my buddies, I golf, they're like, you know, for only golfing for two years and being where you are, like nobody hits a five iron 190 yards, Damien, but you do, you know, and, and like you don't even bother with hybrid. So I, I'm okay when I, when I'm okay, I'm okay. When I'm okay, I'm good. When, but it's one of those things where you will, you will hit a shot that you think, holy crap. I was with a guy that's like a scratch golfer a couple months ago at his fancy club. And he said, Damien, there's pros that would love to have that shot you just made with the four iron of all things, 210 yards out, landed on the green. It's amazing. And then like the next hole, you look like someone may have just injected some sort of poison into your spine and like made you, made you like paralyzed that you looked that bad. Like what the hell just happened? 
So it's a very difficult game to be consistent. Yeah, at. it pisses me off. That's yeah. that's it. I've golfed for a long time and I've let up. And it then, of course, I know it's in there, but it just yeah. Anyway, it so, pisses so me. I'm off. still I'm still on the low. I'm uh, my low nineties. I'm probably oh. my goal now is to get below bogey. I'm I'm a touch over bogey golf um, for the most part. When if I play an easy course, I'll be below bogey. But if I play a normal, I'm probably just a touch worse than bogey. And I want to get that paired down. So that's yeah. one of my objectives. Bogey golf is good. Hey, uh, yeah. before we get into some meat and potatoes, you know, when you, you look somebody up and you, you, you learn new things, you're a Purdue guy, you're a boilermaker. Cause and I knew you were an Indiana guy. you went to Purdue. What I did not know, you have been called a comedian. <laughs> you uh study comedy improv and writing at second city you you actually went to an improv place i tell people all the time you know there's there's places people go to learn you know everybody on saturday night live and all those shows they go to that i've all so i get asked a lot would you ever retire from the arena and do schools for you know i I, i'm not a classic clown more a entertainer comedian Even if you go, you witnessed all of that. I've always wanted to ask somebody who had been, can you teach somebody to be funny or does it enhance what they already have at places like that? I've always wondered. I got to tell you that we didn't set this up, dear audience, uh, of, uh, of, of according to Flint, but this is one of the things that years ago he's talked a lot about. So I don't do comedy per se anymore i'm going to be speaking here for a cinex uh fuel conference about the industry of agriculture about what tomorrow is looking like what energy uh regulation is doing to create a worse uh, environment for our food security those kinds of things i do i connect the dots but i rely every time i'm on stage on my comedy background because comedy is about observation comedy begins with observation right Comedy is really simple to explain. I read it in one of my books. I've read books about comedy, but I didn't learn how to be funny by reading books. How's that to answer your question? And comedy is explained in this uh, book that I read. And I've read a bunch of them. George Carlin, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, I've read a bunch of them. And comedy is observation with point of view and perspective delivered with a punchline. Very easy to explain, very difficult to turn into a business, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're entertaining. I'm entertaining. So I started 28 years, almost 29 years now. I started out by doing political comedy. I was funny. I've always been funny. I was a funny kid. I'm the youngest of a large family. I'm the ninth kid in my family. So I could make people laugh. I had to do it to get attention. I was funny in school. I was witty. I could say funny stuff. I was not a classically trained comedian by any means. I was a corporate salesman when I quit my job to try my hand at political comedy. So to answer your initial question, which I used to cover a lot, you cannot teach funny. Teaching funny is like teaching tall. You either are. (laughs) I agree. Thank you. you. You are either tall or you are not. Not You are either funny or you are not, period. And then people would say, yeah, but in your bio, it says you studied improv and comedy acting. Okay, here's why I did that, comedy writing. I was eight years into my career when we had our big setback. 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants comedy. Nobody wants political comedy. Corporate events got harmed because nobody wanted to go on airplanes. Plus, I was in a very unique situation. My political comedy act was 
predicated on me dressing up as Bill Clinton and doing an act sort of like a Saturday Night Live style sketch, but it was personalized to the audience for corporate groups. So you've got the Bill Clinton thing, the political comedy aspect of it, and it's 9-11 and there's also no conferences. So I'm sitting there slow and business is going to hell in a handcart. So what did I decide to do? Don't you know what? Just kind of like you and I kept getting busy during COVID. We, we did other things to keep ourselves sharp. I looked at like going to the gym and doing a workout. I drove to Chicago every week and took classes at Second City to make it make me stronger and to learn what stuff. I'd already been at it for eight years and I'm in there with class, bunch of kids that are younger than me. I'm in my thirties. I already owned a farm and a house. You know what I mean? I, I'm like, I'm going to do this. And a bunch of those folks thought it would be a diversion. I've got a corporate job. I want to do something creative or I'm living with my mom and dad and they told me to find my life. I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I'm probably going to get on Saturday Night Live, which of course almost nobody ever does. I did it as going to the gym and I said, maybe I'll end up, this will boost my, my showbiz. Something will come along, but either way, I'm doing this to make myself stronger because I'm in a transition phase. So I was, it's kind of like going back to school. You know, you talk about golf. It'd be like the person that decided to go and get professional lessons after playing already at a pretty high level right. for a while i was already a professional comedian for eight years before i ever took any classes i like i i've tried to explain to people by the way i'm the youngest but only of four i've looked back on christmas cards that my mom wrote she was a writer she wrote them all up and everyone went from when i was six years old to 13 well flint's still keeping us all entertained around here you know, <laughs> so I agree because I, I do. I get a lot of people. You should, boy, people would pay money to come to one a school where you teach them how to this, this, this. And I always say, you know, you're either funny or you're not. Uh, you, it, it, it's a, it's a weird part of the brain that it, it is. It's observation where everything you see, you try to look at differently. I just had a kid in here a couple of weeks ago, and I told him. You know, I was trying to help him with material as a rodeo clown. And I said, pay attention. And he said, huh? Pay attention. Everything around you, it's out there. It's there. You just yeah. have to pay attention. So we, it's a curse, Damien. It's a curse. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's a, you know, you know, I've never really waxed on about the entertainment thing, but it is interesting. And I, I mean, you and I have, well, we're obviously, we've been at it for a long time. I remember I went to a doctor and I don't do that very often, but let's say it was a decade ago. And, you know, this guy hears that I, you know, used to be in movies and, you know, used to be a comedian and all that. He was just intrigued. Like, you know, I'm sure yeah. he goes to the cocktail party. and It's like, oh, you're a doctor. And I don't ever do that. But he probably then was the same way coming into that, uh, you know, medical exam room where he keeps saying, oh, you used to be a comedian. I just find this fascinating. He asked me all kinds of questions. And I said, um, well, you were really intrigued by comedy. And I said, I, I just, uh, I said, that's fine. It's my business or it used to be. And then uh, he said, I just find it to be amazing. I just love it. And he went on and on and on about it. I said, okay. Uh, he said, I always wonder what it'd be like to do it. I said, are you funny? He says, well, I could learn. And I said, and that's where you're wrong. <laughs> he says, huh? And I said, you like going and learning how to do it on selectomy. It's not like learning how to do surgery. It's not like going and I said, you can't teach funny. I could take a funny person. You and I could both sit down with someone who obviously has chops and say, hey, listen. And to me, that's just kind of like athleticism. 
Um, we both know that there's that poor kid that the parents make him go and do sports. And you're like, for God's sakes, find a go, <laughs> go away. You know, I always said, Flint, travel sports. That's the funniest thing. You know, you talk to people and they're like, my kid's really good. He's playing travel baseball. I'm like, what's that mean? Well, he's so good that we travel around the private baseball team. I'm like, you know what? You should do that with your kids that suck. Take them to a different <laughs> town where they won't embarrass themselves in front of their friends and family. Have the kids that suck do travel baseball. Yeah. Good kids, have them do it at home. Yeah, so go, play on, go play on the road, man. Uh. <laughs> go, go, go humiliate yourself somewhere yeah. away from the family, please. Uh. So anyway, you and I both know there's kids that if you said, hey, man, this kid's a God-given athlete. He can jump through the rafters. He's fast. His hand-eye coordination is amazing. There's just a whole bunch of stuff you can look at and say, that kid's got, you know, athletic god-given athletic ability i can take that kid if i'm a instructor and really meld them and mold them same thing with someone that's comedically funny if someone has got entertaining chops they've got the ability to the, the poise they can stand in front of the crowd they understand for me it was timing my thing was never that i was a great writer because i took comedy i took the the class at second city to help me with scene writing because then i could learn how to be funny for you probably the same situation. I was so good, not being arrogant. I got good at being funny for Damien. I could, I could save a shitty joke. <laughs> you know, yeah. I could put out, a, I could put out a turd, but I had the ability to salvage it because now what I took at the writing classes were, let me see if I can write a joke that you can deliver funny or that Joe Blow can deliver funny because that means it must be a really solid joke because they're not going to rely on their nuances and their timing and their crowd play to bail it out. So I was never great at writing. Part of my reason for writing books and all that was I wanted to get better at writing. And that's when I went to those classes clear back 20 years ago. My strength was timing and crowd interaction and being on my feet. I mean... Same with you. Yeah. When you're in front of that live audience, you don't get stumped. You don't get rattled. You can bail something out. You probably the same way. I used to have planned ad libs. And you're like, I thought an ad lib meant it wasn't planned. One night I pulled out this thing. It really worked. I put it up my sleeve and said, you put it in, I, I put it in the Rolodex. And then the next time it happens, you make it look like that never happens. Because I'm not you, a good writer, but I can... Yep. There you go. So you so you basically have you have a half dozen what I call planned ad libs yes. where they they're back they're in your in your Rolodex like hey man I pulled this out just because it, and it worked I'm not going to use it I'm going to keep it and there's going to be these aces up my sleeve when I'm in a when I'm in a bad night I'm going to yank this out of here so yeah that's where you say okay well that's training it's it's only training that you know because you've done it it's not training I don't think you could teach I don't think I could teach no. a kid hey if you're really struggling up there and this happens, use this planned ad lib. It won't work. No, that it's funny to, we could do a whole hour of this stuff because I've always said, I work with guys that come with a book full of things they've written down. I'm not a writer, but I always say I've been blessed with a brain. Some people get in front of a big crowd and their brain goes like this. Yeah. When I get in yeah. front of a big crowd, it opens up and does this. Yeah. And so yeah. you take it and take it and take it. Yeah. A lot of da dot connecting. And then on the writing thing, see, I had an act. That's the other thing that people that really are fascinated, but they don't get it. They, they, because if you do it right, it's so flowing and fluid. It doesn't look like you're reading a script. I just watched a person at this fuel conference, get in front of an audience and essentially read, read a script about new diesel fuel technology. I, 
I almost fell asleep, but I wanted to see what this whole group was doing here. It was hideous. It was terrible. It was boring. Nobody in your audience should think you're reading a script. And that's where you make it good enough. My script in the old days was never a script. I never wrote out the thing. I would have a keyword outline. And so you're doing political comedy. You change the jokes every week. You know, you've got your old standbys that are good for a couple of years. You got your one. You just it's good for a week or a month because, you know, Newt Gingrich's girlfriend left him or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> little throwback there, Newt Gingrich. Most of you know, most of you have yeah. no idea who oh, I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. All right. So anyway, my script was essentially a keyword outline and you would look down. It would just say intro mm -hmm. CEO. Uh, travels to Europe. Uh, Monica, you know, it would just be a word. And then each one of those words might be three minutes, but I wanted to make sure that I had a keyword outline because on the airplane, I may have written something for that night. I'm like, let's make sure I don't miss that. So I've got, I've got the word, you know, China written in there or whatever it should be. So I did use a keyword outline, but you glance down, see the word China, and then you can go off three minutes over here and get five, uh, you know, five and a half laughs out of it. That's a big deal. This, it's so weird talking to you because I do the same thing. I'll speak at graduations and I have one word things. And when you do it enough, then you fill in that. And as you're on the plane, when you think of something you don't want to forget, you add that word. Yeah, weird. So, this is weird. So don't you think, probably the same with you, Flint, Mrs. Mason, she never, my, my wife never came to, you know, she, Jay Leno in one of his uh, articles or books talked about this. And by the way, I think Jay Leno's one of the most not funny people that gets called a comedian that I've ever watched. But I've, <laughs> I read an article or two in an interview with him and he talks, I think it was actually a Playboy magazine interview 25 years ago. He talked about seeing the young aspiring guy that comes into the club and then his girlfriend wants to be so supportive and she's there and she's there and she's there and he's no good. And by about a week, She's sick of hearing the same bit about uh, how ballpoint pins are, you know, the new chopsticks or whatever. And so she hates comedy and hates being there. I never wanted to wear out Mrs. Mason. She's been to my events before, but also I'm like, hey, this is what I do. You can support it, but you don't need to be at this thing. So anyway, when she has been there, she's always really good observations. Just, hey, you need to change this or, hey, you need to do that. But it was years ago back in political comedy days, way back, that I was sitting backstage and I was going like this. And she says, nobody understands what you're doing. Like some of these people think you're like autistic, which she thinks I am partly. But I mean, <laughs> maybe you've been there. So anyway, yeah. I'm going through and I'm thinking about flow because to me, a good presentation, whether it's a commencement address, as you just said, or a comedy presentation or your act at a PBR thing. I think it should be like a really well-played ping pong game. I wanted to have that timing and flow and back and forth. And so I was always looking at that thing of about the flow that China flows into Boris Yeltsin jokes, which flow into China's China's economy, which ties into Teddy Kennedy. I want that whole flow to, to, and I was always looking at how it came together because that creates crowd feel and crowd feel, as you well know, and flow of emotion is more important than the actual uh, 
punchline because most people are more emotional than they are audible. I think there's like 20% of our population that's auditory, whereas 40% of them are feeling and 40% of them are visual. So you've got to make sure there's the flow and the emotion and the feel and some level of visual entertainment, which obviously you that's what you do most much of. And then the words I'm auditory. I love the words. I love a crisply delivered line that just absolutely knocks you out of your chair, but you've got to have the other stuff or the words won't work. Here, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, this is like a segue. Speaking of emotion and feel to get into a little of things we've talked about in the past. One of my favorite things when you would come on my radio show, and this all started back when I had outside the barrel on the radio once a week, yeah. and I'd have you on every five, six weeks. Emotion, feel, how do we feel? My favorite topic, which really rings with the people that listen to my podcast because it's my business, is you'd always come with a new story about animal wackos. The animal <laughs> wackos. And it was all about, it's all, it's all about emotion. It's all about touching your emotion. It's not about facts. It's not right. about what you hear. It's not about putting it all together that makes sense. It's about emotion. You even, I remember when you'd even refer to it as a religion, the religion of animal extremism. Mm -hmm. it, that was always, to me, I could never get enough of that. So mm -hmm. true, completely mm -hmm. about emotion. Well, humans are emotional uh and less less logical more emotional uh we're not being mean when we say that it's pretty obvious um you know we in agriculture god i go to these conferences and i have these people that uh, get up and say i'm just passionate patient that's the big word um if you go on linkedin flint as i'm sure you have everybody's passionate i saw a profile a few years ago a guy that his business was like selling um magnetic tape and he talked about how passionate he was. I'm like, dude, are you this passionate about selling my, but in agriculture, they're always talking about passion, passion, passion. I'm like, Hey, just to clarify, passion is defined as an out of control emotion. When a guy kicks in the door at a seedy motel on the bad side of town and kills his wife and her illicit lover with a shotgun that they're having an affair, they call that a crime of passion. passion. Are we really there over soybeans? I hope to God not. <laughs> well, true. That, so, yeah. So anyway, but while we know people are emotional, I think we almost give license to be ridiculously emotional. We talk about how passionate we are and how we just can't move. So yes, people are emotional. I hope they're not passionate, that impassionate to where they want to, uh, you know, shotgun somebody over soybeans. But anyway, <clears throat> when you do what you do, you deliver information in this format right here and it's got some entertainment value. And then there's also some emotion to it. That is fine. Um, when you're at the arena, it's a touch more emotional because it's entertainment. Now I've got to do that thing where I'm talking about some agricultural economics issues and how the cost of uh, interest rates are, and, and, and fuel are going to perpetuate food inflation. I've got to do it in an emotionally evoking way, but also in a, enough informative yet entertaining way that they stay tuned in. So that's where um, it's a good thing that you and I uh, were showmen when we were kids because we're still doing it. We're just doing it uh, in a different venue with uh, a level of intelligence and perspective. And obviously now, uh, like you said, it's the observation. We, we bring the stuff that we see. 
and we say, you see this too, but let me show it to you from my perspective. Yeah. How, how did we get to a point as I am standing on a street in New York City, surrounded by people who have never heard true silence or seen true darkness mm -hmm. out in the country or has never seen cows literally standing out in a green pasture. How is it that they can convince the world that cow farts are the problem? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Where technically cows don't fart, <clears throat> by the way. That, but how have we gotten it? That, that's emotion. That is, that's playing to an emotion of people that truly don't see the true facts. How have we done that? So I'm going to college there at Purdue and it's about an hour and a half South of Chicago. So it's in uh, you know, it, it's, it's got plenty of rural Indiana agricultural stuff around it. It is the ag school. A lot of people didn't know that Purdue is the land grant ag school. It's the version of Montana state or university of Wyoming. And it's, it's the one in Indiana. And so I'm in the school of agriculture there at Purdue. And I got a bunch of these kids that I know that are from Chicago and the ones carrying on over a couple of beers talking about, uh, you know, when they drove out from the suburbs of uh, Illinois and, and or cow tipping. And then he was going on to some of his other buddies that are like from New York about cow tipping. They said, so Damien, wow, man, like, you probably done something. I said, you know, that's all completely bullshit, don't you? And they said, why does it? I said, this kid that you're hearing this from doesn't live anywhere close to the country. So he's telling you that him and his buddies drive out to the country. And I said, if you walk down to field, you're going to start pushing a cow over. You're going to push over a four. So this 160 pound kids out there pushing a cow over Well, they sleep. Stand. I said, no, that's not true either. I said, so when you think about it, this misinformation, whether it's cow tipping or cow farts, it's about the same thing. You and I have raised animals. You and I have butchered animals. You and I have been in the livestock facilities around North America, whatever. We understand what it is. We understand the entire part of agricultural production and whatnot. you got people that are going to an agricultural university just 25, 30 years ago, when I, 30 some years ago when I was there talking about cow tipping, they might as well have been talking about cow farts because the audience was still so ignorant about that that it did not matter. So now imagine you lean left and you say, Damien, let's not get political. With about a 95 to 5% ratio, vegans and vegetarians would tend to line up more on the left-hand side of the column than the right-hand side. That's a of the fact. Column. Yes. Okay. Um, and then you say, all right, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knows that her base are young liberal uh, folks looking for a cause. So, and she's dumber than a, uh, you know, a box of hammers, but she is at least smart enough to understand how to manipulate people. So if you're dumber than a box of hammers, but you're smart enough to at least manipulate people and you realize your base, because then I have folks in ag say, well, doesn't she realize that hurts her? What about people like me that want to eat steak? I'm like, you are never going to support her anyhow. They make the calculated decision to just go, you know, we talk about in business, are you are you shallow and broad or are you deep and narrow? She's deep and narrow. She is absolutely going to appeal to left-leaning, sometimes hard left-leaning. Mm -hmm. she, she was the first one that came out and called herself a social democrat, which means socialist. Um, so it doesn't hurt her at all with her base because a certain group of people, meat-eating conservatives, are never going to vote for her anyhow. So when you think about it, her saying that uh, cow operations should be shut down, there should be rationing of burger. She had an MSNBC 
town hall about two years ago. That's where she talked about cow farts and there should be rations. Well, everybody in that arena are her supporters. And the person interviewing her works for MSNBC, which obviously leans her away. So when you think about it, the more she rails against those evil people out in Montana with their cows that are farting and hurting the environment, the more it plays to her base. Also, there's so many people that are in the middle that maybe don't think that they're necessarily Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez voters or fans, but if she's on TV saying that cow farts are harming the environment, there's a certain number of those people that think that that must be true. Must be true. So that's the tough part that we got is that, yeah, they've never been there. They're never going to be there. And they choose to consume whichever media or whichever messaging they want to hear. Um, I it, it, coincidentally, I just heard this on TV this morning. There's a there's a commentator. He's on uh, Fox Business Channel a lot. He wears the Holstein sport coat. Do you know that guy? He's on RFD TV. You know, <laughs> on RFD TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's a markets guy. He does yeah. he does the green markets guy. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but I thought of you because here we were doing this today. He. He put it a good way, and I would just say it, but then I'd be stealing. But he's, he compares, you know, they, they keep talking about plant-based fake meat, you know? Yeah. He yeah. says, it was brought up in his interview, and he said, it's not a worry because it's like decaf coffee and non-alcoholic beer. Nobody really wants decaf coffee, and nobody really <laughs> wants non-alcoholic beer. It's just the other option. And he put, I thought he put it a good way. He said, nobody really goes to a steakhouse. To get a plant-based steak, it's just another option because they got stuck there. So he says it will never be a big market. It's just a talking point to build on, and it's an option. I liked that take on it. That's a very good take, and it's an accurate take. I, I've got it's on my reading list for tonight. Um, Beyond Meets Reality is a Bloomberg article. It just came out yesterday afternoon. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I pointed out it was this summer, Flint. When those companies like Impossible Meats and Beyond Burger came out about four years ago, oh, they just they had so much money invested in them from huge sources, the Bill Gates's, Jeff Bezos's, and all those. And they debuted, and then their stock market went up, and then it was all this whole propaganda, frankly, that all of us are going to switch over to this because it's so much better for the environment and cow farts, cow farts, cow farts. As you pointed out, (laughs) methane is mostly from cow digestion through the burps, if you will. Anyhow, it's all ridiculous. Um, And then their share prices went up. So about this summer, I think it was, or spring, I'm checking it out. Beyond Meat's share price had dropped 81% from its high. So that was mostly just hype that took that share price up And it was not because of actual sales. It was not because of an actual business model that's like, oh, man, this stuff is really doing well. They had their flash. They had their 15 minutes. My hometown, which is a factory and farming town, even had impossible Whoppers at the Burger King. Mm -hmm. They don't need more. So the consumer tried it. The consumer got caught up with it. Consumers tend to do that. You know, it's the new, it's the new fad. It's this thing. Have you tried this? It's the Rubik's cube. It's whatever the thing is, but it didn't last. Best testament we can go with is during the pandemic, when there was plants that processed pork were shut down. People are calling me. I'm getting on Fox media and all this kind of stuff, talking about the reality of food. And Flint, you went to a grocery store in some of the larger cities and the meat counter was already sold out because people were panicking. But guess what? 
they're still beyond burgers over there. I'm like, even when you thought you weren't going to be able to get protein, nobody wanted that crap. What does that tell you? Even when you thought you were going to die, you even still you wouldn't eat fake die, meat. I'm, I'm, I might be dying, but by God, it's not going to, it's not going to be enough to tempt me to eat. So they really do have, they have, they, they are at a quandary because it's been four years. Are they selling environmentalism? Oh, it's better for the environment, which that's not necessarily true. When you think about that reality that your listeners, of course, are right there with us because they're probably beef eaters. A cow is out there on range. We've got 900 million acres, Flint, of agricultural land in the United States that's privately held. 900 million. About 360 million of that is crop production. Corn, soybeans, wheat are the three bigs, of course. And then you've got, you know, your specialty crop from cauliflower to cranberries to, you know, your orchard crops, almonds, whatever. 40% of the 900 is in crop cultivation. That means 60% of the privately held agricultural land in the United States, the best it can do is range or hay, right? How do you take grass and make it into something to eat? Humans can't digest grass. We can after it goes through a cow or a sheep. All right, that's it. So it's the idea that environment, uh, environmental damage because of cattle it's really an effective means of harvesting something that's indigestible and turning it into animal protein, A. And B, it's, as we've learned, when managed correctly, wildfires, et cetera, et cetera. So bovine are really effective for the management of, uh, of uh, you know, rangelands. So there's that part of it. But the environmental thing, some of the ingredients, if you look at these fake meats, yeah. are palm oil. Well, are there any palm trees producing oil in Montana? No. All of the palm oil in the United States comes from like places like Indonesia. Now, are we to pretend that the environmental standards in Indonesia are the same as they would be here? No, of course not. They get put on a boat that burns hundreds of gallons of diesel per hour to be shipped across the ocean. They are packaged in plastic. So this environmental angle on uh, fake meat just doesn't play out when you start looking at transportation, et cetera. So the angle that the environment would be better if we didn't eat meat, there's a lot of flaws in that, a lot of holes in that logic. There's the transportation issues. There's the fact that we're still going to eat something. Then there's the issue of nutrient density. You eat meat, there's a lot of protein density per ounce of meat. Where do you get that? You say, oh, well, beans. Well, first off, humans don't eat that many beans. I mean, if, if it was something that we love to do, we'd already be doing it. So there's a lot of flaws in the whole anti-meat campaign, if you will. Yeah. Well, you have, you know, one thing that's been nice about you is you do send me different topics and, and hot topics going on. And with, it, there are a lot of green, quote unquote, green policies written into a lot of things. Uh, you have mentioned to me, um, you know, climate activists, uh, convincing people, the Netherlands, mm -hmm. they have policies going into place to shut down the liquid they have for the liquidation of livestock farms. Yeah. So the government does that mean the government is actually ordering this? And well, give me a little background there. So the protests that people started seeing, and the media didn't cover it much. The media right. obviously doesn't cover the, the mainstream media doesn't mainstream media doesn't cover things that might be important to normal folks, um, because it's a you know the media is a selling forum, and one should never forget that. The idea that it's journalism that's not true. You want true journalism? Listen to listen to according to Flint. Listen to the business <laughs> of agriculture. Well, my podcast is the business of agriculture. You'll get a perspective on the business of agriculture. It's, right. Um, 
the Dutch situation, uh, Holland is about one third the size of Indiana, just to put it in perspective. So my state of Indiana, where I my farm is, is going to be like one third or one fourth the size of Montana. It's probably about one third the size of your home state. So it's a smaller state, but it's also got a lot of agriculture. The Netherlands is one third the size of Indiana. But it's also very, very agriculturally productive. There's good soils. There's very good technology. The Dutch actually have been so good at it. They're good business people and they're good agricultural producers. They are the number two exporter of agricultural products by value, not by volume. That'd be places like the United States, of course, is number one in, in volume and value, Brazil. But in value, the Netherlands is the number two exporting country by value. Very productive. More importantly, they're in a very highly populated area. So all the all the calories you can produce right there, then you didn't have to ship them. You'd think that the greenies would like this, but there's been a new term that's come up in the last few months. We are all about carbon for a long time, Flint. Now it's moved to nitrogen and nitrous oxide. You and I have heard of nitrous oxide, laughing gas. Right. Dentist. Well, that's the new boogeyman. That's the new tobacco. That's the new carbon. It's That's the one the that new... touches the emotions. That's the one that, uh, yeah. Nitrogen and nitrous oxide. Mm. So methane. So now it's methane and nitrogen. And so there is no kidding in the Netherlands, which is Holland, is they have a thing called the Dutch Minister of uh, Environment and Emissions. This woman, that is her title. Again, the Netherlands tends to be more left-leaning, left-leaning countries are now be creating an anti-nitrogen, anti-methane movement convinced that they're, they're detrimental to our environment. We've got to do this. So the reason we saw a Dutch protest, and you can, you can look this up, you'd probably do well to look it up from a source other than Google because they'll probably ration what you can find. The Dutch farmers took to the streets, drove their tractors, did traffic blockades, and said no, because one of the proposals was if you're in an area that's got too much nitrogen density, you will be forced to liquidate your livestock, which ultimately then if you're paying for your farm through a livestock enterprise, you may not be able to afford your farm. You might have to liquidate your farm. You're talking about farm operations in some of that part of the world that have been in operation since the 1600s. So you can imagine the emotion that that creates. Hey, you're going to have to go and liquidate this farm that's been in your family for 400 years because we're going to force you to get rid of your hog operation or your cattle operation. They do a lot of dairy. They do a lot of pork. Mm -hmm. From an environmental standpoint, the part that's pure emotion versus logic is this. The Americans, the Western Europeans, we get influenced by all these anti-meat movements but they don't ever really take any effect. We're still only about 2% of the population that's vegetarian or vegan. The vegan crowd, Flint, will tell you it's 8% of the population, but when you actually parse the numbers, it's never really that high. Well, I'm a vegetarian, except I eat chicken. Well, I'm right. a vegan, except for it. So it's only really about 2%. It's a hard lifestyle to even adhere to. You know, to be a vegan means you're going to have to look through everything in your every day and say, is there an animal byproduct? So well, the, the reason it's higher to them is because they tell you about it so much. It seems way higher. And you like want, doing and CrossFit. A, so Sorry. let's just say you let's say you're a <laughs> rabid vegan, and all the people you hang out and drink coffee with and don't eat meat with, some of them do eat meat, but they're afraid to admit it in front of you. So again, even many of the people that self-report as being vegetarian aren't really. I can pull I can pull data on that. So here's what I'm going to point out. The people in Europe want to eat meat and milk and eggs that comes from those Dutch farms. 
And so we're still going to produce them somewhere on the planet, just not in the Holland. Holland has among the most efficient agricultural producers in the world, meaning they use less natural resource to make that pound of pork or that gallon of milk. So what's that really mean they're doing? You're offshoring your environmental footprint. We know that our people are still going to eat bacon, but we don't want them to make it here because it's politically our big thing to say that we should shut down these farms. Okay, go to Brazil where they're way less efficient and yep. the environmental degradation is 10 times as bad and you're bulldozing out the Amazon forest to build uh, hog facilities. It's asinine. It's not logical. But again, none of this is. It's emotional. This bad part of this Flint, is this same concept caught on in Ireland and Justin Trudeau up in Canada is talking about the exact same thing that we're going to reduce our nitrogen uh, emissions and we might have and here's the deal. The consumer wants meat. I wrote about it in my book right here. 220 pounds of meat consumption per American per year, uh, two years ago. That number is going to come down a little bit. It will not be because of environmental stuff. It'll be because of cost, because right now your groceries are going up faster than your paycheck. But the point is, consumers want meat. The more money you give them, the more meat they consume. This is proven again and again, looking at any global economic index. When you give somebody a pit raise, they eat better. And by eat better, that means meat. So all the movement of environmentalism is really going against what economics and human nature dictates and wants to do. Mm. Um, it, it's almost like we're not going to produce oil, but we're going to have them produce more oil and we're going to bring it here. As long as it's not happening here, we're blind to similar. It's the same thing. It's, really. it's, 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 it's the exact same thing. And then what's even makes it worse. Then we're transporting it further, which should be worse, which is worse for the environment. And we're doing the production in a country that does not have as good of environmental standards as we do. So it's again, worse for the environment. And like I also just said, there's the productivity. The most efficient producers of animal protein happen to be in Western Europe and in North America. So when we shut down production here, it's then just moving it to another place that's going to be worse at it, which is, again, worse for the environment. If it takes you twice as much grain to put on a pound of beef in another country, <laughs> or it takes you eight months longer because you're not feeding them correctly, yeah. It's worse for the environment. So yeah, mm. everything about it is opposed to what reality of economics or productivity is, but that's where we are. It's it's very politically, it's very politically, I think, in vogue right now. That's why it's happening. Right. I mean, it's it's happening. There there are there are voters that will that support this, apparently. Yeah. It's a cause, it's an emotion. It is well, and you you mentioned uh, kind of in passing about because right now the cost of our food has gone up above what our paycheck is. Yeah. The yeah. cost of food ties to the cost of energy, basically, <clears throat> right? I mean, that's yeah. why you look and a steak is so much more because cost of energy is up. So the production of the, correct? It all, does it yeah, go so back it, to that? Um, they tend to walk down the same aisle hand in hand. If you look at it, and most people don't. I'm not going to get in the weeds of the economics, but let's just look at this logically framed by this, you know, at least got a gauge on a little bit of world history. Any economy that is thrived in the last hundred years has had two things, abundant food and abundant and affordable electricity. So energy, energy goes 
and I'm not just saying just electricity, also fuel, but the point is energy and food, energy and food. And they both obviously feed another and they both also feed us and they feed our economy. The United States has the least costly food. The most affordable food in the world is here in the United States. That is changing rapidly with this inflation. Uh, five years ago, we spent about 6.2% of our uh, gross income on food. That number is pushing double digits right now because you saw what happened. The report came out a week or so ago. Grocery prices, 13.4 to 13.5% up. So you go up 13.5% year over year. Uh, eggs were up 40%. You know, meat is up 25, depending on the cut and the, and the, you know, the type. So we've got a real problem there when wages are going up 3% and your food is going up 13 and a half percent, it's unsustainable, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, sustainable as it can't last. Um, energy, you know, I know that there are certain folks that like to say, oh, well, gas has come down. Well, it has a little, but it still is high and it's higher than it was just a year or two ago. Diesel has come down by a lesser amount. And what do you think drives the global food system? how do we truck stuff how do we push stuff around on trains and how do we put stuff on boats that's all diesel and not to mention the tractors and the combines that are out in the fields so we got a real problem here that food and energy do go hand in hand together electric bills your your electric bill went up 15 percent year over year well how much electrification happens in all the processing facilities where we take food whether it's lettuce <laughs> grown under led lights or chickens that are being cut up by tyson it all requires electricity and refrigeration. Energy is creating a higher food price for us. And it's not the only reason, but it's one of the big reasons. Well, thank God we won't have any diesel vehicles in a while. So stuff will, electric combines, electric. <laughs> so just had this I just had this conversation. There's an investor group called Open Prairie that I was uh, on a call with before I started recording with you. They do venture equity funds, they put money into rural and agricultural uh, ventures. And they were just asking, we were discussing, they wanted my opinion about a couple of things. And so, uh, I, as you know, I have no shortage of opinions, as long as I can back them up with my research and, and knowledge. This energy thing, again, I'm speaking at an energy conference here tomorrow. This is Cinex, big, you know, biggest cooperative, biggest agricultural cooperative in the world. They sell a lot of diesel. And I said, okay, take me 10 years from now. And they said, well, do you think we'll have a 200 horsepower tractor? Do you think we'll have batteries that can do that? The work of a 200 horsepower tractor in five to 10 years. And I said, no. And the thing is, we have tractors in your part of the world that are 400 horsepower. Mm -hmm. Do you realize the battery requirement to do what that work? You couldn't have a big enough battery. It would it would be bigger than the tractor, right? Which is already bigger than it can go down the county road. It's it's just not feasible. Uh, the green dream of battery operated farm equipment, if, if it becomes a requirement, you know, find yourself ten acres and, and get some firearms. You're going to grow your own food because you're just not going to be able to do it. It's just not feasible. Who? And I don't want to keep you all day. But in a, in a smaller sense, you explained AOC, the politician, in her section of the world, she can say whatever she wants because those people already are with her. She's not playing to us. So that benefits her in that district that she represents. In these big picture things, you know it. 
I know it. Millions of us know it, that it's not sustainable. You can't make a 400 horsepower tractor with a battery. They know that. They, they, they know that. Who's benefiting from this? Where, where is the backdoor thing where people are going, just do it, talk about it, because I'm going to benefit from it? Yeah, that's the tough part. And this is really the most disgusting part. You'd be naive to say we don't live in a transactional government. We, we do. We, we live in a country with a transactional government. Um, the whole infrastructure bill that was pushed uh, through, which has, it's not about infrastructure. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not, it was supposed to be inflation, inflation, inflation. reduction. Act. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's going to edge up to 760 to a trillion dollars. It's, it's numbers that are so astronomically big that the average person can't, and I think they rely on that. They rely on the fact that the person that's driving to work in buildings right now doesn't know a billion from a trillion because it's just, it's like trying to comprehend how many gallons are in the ocean. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, I can't do it, but we all know that it's bad and we're over levered and that is why we have inflation. So we've got this situation where they push through the inflation reduction act, which is going to spend more money. And a bunch of it is on green, green causes right now in the countryside, at least here's an article right here for you. In fact, in today's wall street journal, or maybe it's yesterday's. So a big wind project sparks bitter debate in rural Ohio. This is North of Columbus, Ohio. And this company called Apex just has boatloads of money through things like the green uh, component of the Inflation Reduction Act. So they're pushing, the county commissioners in this county already said no wind projects in this county, but they have so much money, they were able to go ahead and get a PR'd and get a, a petition signed to force it to become a referendum in the election. We're going to see more of that. And it's not because true voter sentiment, it's because follow the money. Follow the money, follow the money. You're a smart guy. We all know how it works. Follow the money. Bill Gates, Bloomberg ran an article. Bill Gates personally lobbied to get that whole Inflation Reduction Act with the $460 billion green uh, incentives intact. He wanted that part of it. Why? Dig a little deep. Bill Gates has huge investments in the fake meat companies. Bill Gates has huge investments in green cement companies, which means instead of using normal cement, if you use this green cement, which probably costs three times as much, it's better for the environment. It's probably mostly made up, but again, it's the emotion and follow the money. I think that people like Bill Gates are quite evil. I believe that politicians like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez are quite evil because I believe they will do anything they can to attain wealth and power. And you'd say, oh, Damien, that's been that way forever. Sure, it has. Um, right now, they're doing things that kings and rulers did against peasants. They're messing with our food supply. The, the things that they are doing to make energy more expensive in Washington, D.C. are harming the serfs and the peasants. It doesn't harm the lobbyist crowd, the D.C. crowd. They're not going without right now. Bill Gates is not going without. In fact, all of the work he is doing to push through this legislation to make fossil fuel more difficult helps his investment in battery plants and lithium mines in third world countries. It's evil. And that's what I'm most concerned about because, you know, I'm an ag guy. And I think about what the United States Department of Agriculture stood for when it was created back in the 1860s. Abraham Lincoln said, he called it in his very last address before Congress, before he was assassinated, he called it the People's Department when he essentially introduced the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture to the world. 
affordable, abundant, and safe food for the masses. And you're talking about a country that now just less than a couple hundred years from the incarnation of the USDA is now saying, we are going to push through what we call environmental green policies, even though they're not really going to make the weather change. They're not going to do anything for climate, but they're going to ingratiate people like billionaire Bill Gates because he essentially paid us to make this legislation happen. Or in AOC's case, I'll just continue to say this outlandish stuff about cow farts because it plays to my base and it keeps me in power and I'm probably too dumb to get a real job anyhow. So that's the evil part of what's happening. And again, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. Money and power. Uh, sorry, I'm right. Re- see, I write down spots where I re- that I really like. <laughs> uh, well, you uh, of all the people that have been on this podcast, your Marriott background is by far the best of any. So you and I, you, you and I know what it's like. Flint, uh, you work the road. And I said, absolutely, I can catch, a, I can catch a recording with you, but I'm going to be in a hotel in Minnesota. That's okay. Um, the lighting was good. Uh, really I've got good. a pillow. I've got a pillow propped up behind the computer so it absorbs the ricochet off the wall because this is not my first recording inside of a, mo- a hotel room, <laughs> as you can try imagine. You know, you know, it's funny, and I'll let you go, but. Here's something else that not, I'm not trying to start a different topic. I'm trying to clarify. I'm fine. It, hey, it, obviously, it, I, I don't have to be on stage till tomorrow. Yeah, you're good. You're good. When, if you, in today's world and in today's world of entertainment, we were talking about comedy, observational comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, if you bring something up, you're automatically insulting your, you and I, through our talk in these last 55 minutes or so have brought up the politics of all of this. And people will say, don't get into politics. We're not get. we're getting into it in fact, in facts. The fact is, you know, if you're watching this podcast, I hope you're an, you, you said it, and I've said this, I'm an ag guy. Yeah. I live in Montana, for God's sakes. It is a fact that the statistics you give are fact. Whether yeah. they rub you wrong politically or not, it's fact. We're not expressing opinions about a person's personality or, well, possibly maybe you're too dumb to get a real job. <laughs> but um, it's interesting in what we have become in everything we can and can't say is reflective of everything, including policies that happen in this world. You're instantly insulting. Don't. Um, you know, when it, you think about Flint, um, and, and you already kind of alluded to one of my statements that I made about when people's causes become their religions, there is a reality to this that, you know, the point I always make, my mom's place at the pew at the Catholic Church uh, is not being replaced. And I'm not making any opinion. I can read, I can find you the facts are all over the place. There's less devotion to what we'd call traditional religion now than yes. there was just 50 years ago. And so that doesn't mean that humans, the emotional beings they are, don't they adopt climate change they adopt mask policies they adopt uh uh cow farts they adopt whatever that thing is that gives them fulfillment they adopt veganism these are religious type movements for the individuals that are in that space because it makes them feel good it gives them fulfillment and also is there it's their church if you're a vegan that's convinced that cow farts are destroying the environment, even though it's not accurate, and that if we all switched over to, you know, eating earthworms would be better, you're going to find other people that 
believe that at the rally you go to and carry your sign and that becomes your tribe and so humans are at the very core still very tribal in this way as well as being you know emotional as well as generally being scientifically illiterate you know the climate thing I, people say oh you're a denier i'm like if you have to insult me by coming up with a term denier which was actually brought up years ago when people questioned the holocaust you're doing this to misrepresent me the reality is i'm pointing out that eating meat is not, is not destroying the climate when there's so many other elements to this entire thing about emissions etc in fact agriculture could very well be the best solution to any environmental improvement we can make again we talked about grazing animals as management talked about eating local all those kinds of things so i get tired of the uh I get tired of the arguments that come at you from the 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 zealots of their causes because there's never an economic or realistic or logical component to it. It's that I'm doing this because uh, out of force generally, um, and I'm doing it because it makes it, it it makes somebody money behind me or it makes my followers follow me great to a greater uh, to a great degree. Yeah. Yeah. Basic because I know you know this, but I think about a lot when I hear about cows and how bad they are. There's a spot a couple hours down the Yellowstone River here from where I sit, where it is recorded that whichever of Lewis and Clark went back down the Yellowstone, past Pompey's Pillar, where they stopped. Didn't, only, didn't, the, one, of, didn't only one of them physical, hang out? Didn't one of them just say, I'm going to hang here for a while? Or what happened to the other one? Uh, I don't know. What, whatever. They... <laughs> But there is a spot where it is recorded that they docked their boats to wait for the herd of up to a million buffalo in one herd cross yeah. the Yellowstone River in front of them. And it yeah. virtually dammed up the river because yeah. of so many. Technically, yeah. there were more, more bovines on this continent then yeah. than there are now. Yeah. So... Uh... <laughs> But remember, but remember, they're not in feed yards uh, outside of Lubbock. And so therefore, when the CBS News needs to do a hit piece uh, or CNN saying that, as they did 10 years ago, eating beef is the new SUV. Because remember, they, they were anti-SUVs. If right. you wanted to drive a car right. you liked, it meant you were evil. So then it was, if you eat a cheeseburger, and they can go and shoot footage of a feed yard where there's you know, 10,000 animals out there uh, just, just eating and farting. So obviously they're bad for the environment. So <laughs> they had to really work to go and uh, to do the documentation on Lewis and Clark after all. Oh my gosh. Well, listen, I uh, will do this again. And I, I'm sorry, it's been so long. You know, we both went through all the COVID, all personal stuff. And, and uh, I forgot how much I like this. It's good stuff. And uh, I try to keep some good stuff for you. So you know yeah. what? Every anytime you want me to come on and talk to you, um, I'm happy to be a part of recording the Flint. If you need other, uh, if any of your people want to keep up with my stuff, I got a YouTube channel. You can find all my stuff at DamianMason.com. DamianMason.com. I'm all over social media. I'm, I, I spend money being found, so you should be able to find me. DamianMason.com, and you can check out my stuff. You're the best, my friend. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. <laughs>